Amen. Good singing. Go ahead and remain standing. Let's go ahead and take our Bibles. We're going to turn of Luke this morning, the book of Luke, the book of Luke, and we're not going to be here all morning. This is going to be kind of a springboard text for us. Luke chapter 1, by the way, fathers, happy Father's Day to each and every one of you. And um, since everybody's already standing, I won't have you stand. But uh, if you did not get your cookie when you came in, we got crumble cookies for each one of the fathers, and they're in the very back. And uh, I know that many of you have already gotten yours, but if you have not, make sure you get one before you leave today. And they're called cookies. Really, they're they're a small cake is what they are, Uh, but they're very good. And uh, just a small token from Corridor Baptist Church to let you know how much we appreciate Uh, our fathers. Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse number 16. The word of God says, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. This is talking about John the Baptist. Verse 17 says, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. I'm going to preach a message this morning titled, It's Not Easy Being a Godly Father. It's not easy being a godly father. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you'd be with us this morning. And Lord God, as we... Observe this day today, Lord God, a day that we give to our fathers. Lord God, I, I believe the most unappreciated gift in our society is the gift of a dad. Lord God, dads have been maligned. They have been um, told that they're really not that important. And Lord God, your word says just the opposite, and it's just more proof, Father God, that what you say is important, the world says is not, and what you says ought not be a priority, the world says is it ought to be. Lord God, our dads have missed the boat because society has missed the boat. And I pray, Father God, that you would just bless this time this morning. I pray it would be an encouragement to dads. I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we apply these principles to each and every one of us this morning, that we would see that these are biblical principles. These are not Steve's principles. These are not the principles of, uh, of some organization. Lord God, these are biblical principles. This is what you have for us. And Lord, I pray now that you just be with the time. Use it for your glory and honor. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can go and be seated. Luke chapter 1 here, Luke is writing about John the Baptist and his ministry. Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And we know that John the Baptist did this. John the Baptist came on the scene like a whirlwind. We don't know exactly uh, how long before Jesus he came onto the scene. We know he was born about six months prior to Jesus. They were related in that they were distant cousins. But John the Baptist burst onto the scene, and some say he was probably around 25 when he did so, which means about five and a half years that he prepared the way of the Lord. That was his God-given mission. 
That was what God had told him to do. But within that mission were other results, one of which was to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, as we read in verse number 17. This is an interesting statement. But, you know, I think it's a statement that needs to be said. And, boy, if we could ever see a time when the hearts of the fathers need to be turned to the children, it is today. You know, it's interesting that it does not say to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. Now, the original prophecy did in the book of Malachi, but for whatever reason, uh, God allowed Luke to leave that part out. And I think that's why we're going to be here this morning. You see, the biblical fathers were given a great responsibility regarding the children. They were to provide for the home. Laziness was considered immoral. It was, it was immoral to be lazy. I believe laziness should still be considered as immoral. When we, can, when we think about that and, and how that we allow people to get away with laziness. God hates laziness. God has as much to say, if not more to say, about the immorality of laziness as he does about the immorality of, say, fornication or homosexuality. God hates laziness. And we can see it throughout the Word of God. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse number 6, the Bible says, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. By the way, sluggard is a very crass way of saying lazy. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer. Gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. God's word says that poverty is almost always the result of laziness. Now, you can be... You can be uh, poor and not be lazy, but generally, if you're lazy, you're going to end up being poor in one way or the other. First Timothy 5.8, but if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So God put this on fathers. He put this on men. He said, this is what you're supposed to do. They were to provide for the home. And laziness was considered immoral. They also were to lead the home in spiritual matters while spending time instructing and leading by example. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Bible says, These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. I want you to notice what it says here. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, by the way. God says, Considering my word, thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. 
In other words, God said it's not up to the school to teach your children about morality and the ways of God. It's not up to the school. It's not up to the community center. It's not up to Head Start. It's not up to anyone else. He says, dads, this is your job. Do it. And be diligent about it. Diligently teach them. Thou shalt talk about them when thou sittest in thine house. You know what that means, Dad? You got to be home. You have to be home. So you can talk about these things while you sit in your home. By the way, can I say this? That providing your children spiritual upbringing is a whole lot better for your kids than working that overtime so that you can buy them that the latest and greatest toy or that, that the newest fad or get them into that, that, that club sport. Thou shalt talk about them when thou sittest in, your, in thine house, when thou walkest by the way. That means you're walking with your kids. You're talking with your kids. You're communicating with your kids. Hey, when you're in the car, turn off the radio. Talk to your kids. Communicate. When it comes time to sit down and eat, sit down at the table and turn off the television. And talk with your kids. Communicate with your kids. Find out what's going on in your kids' lives. When thou sittest, when thou walkest, when thou liest down. One of my best memories as a father raising kids is when I would tuck them in at night and and I would make up stories. I'd lay in bed with them and they, Dad, tell me a story. And this was not a nightly thing, but it happened quite often. And what I find really funny is the fact I've forgotten all about these stories that, uh, that I told my kids because I just kind of made them up as I went. They still remember those stories to this day. Dad, remember that story that you told about such and such? And uh, no, I really don't, but they do because they remember these things. And my stories were always gross and bloody and someone died and and uh, the object was to scare my kids you wonder why my kids are warped well that's why when thou liest down when thou risest up proverbs 13 1 says a wise son heareth his father's instruction well dads need to be giving it if a son's going to hear it Proverbs 15, 5, a fool despiseth his father's instruction. And Ephesians 6, 4, ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I find it interesting that God was concerned about the hearts of the fathers being turned to the children. And I kind of wonder if, if God wasn't addressing a society much like ours where dads were just too busy for their hearts to be turned to their children. We tend to look at the younger generation and bemoan their disrespect to their parents, their dismissal of tradition, their disregard for morality, and we falsely assume that the downfall of society is all because of them. 
I believe, however, that it started with previous generations. If we could get fathers to be completely sold out to raising their children in accordance to God's word, it would make a huge difference one generation at a time. Perhaps if we could get dads to be dads and biblically turn their hearts to the ch- their children, it wouldn't matter what the schools were teaching because they'd be getting what they're supposed to get at home. It wouldn't matter what Hollywood was regurgitating because Hollywood wouldn't be raising our kids, dads would. It would change the laws of the, that the politicians are passing. You know, being a biblical dad is so vital to the fabric of society, it's no wonder that it is attacked by Satan on every angle. Good biblical dads are very rare. They're hard to find. And when you are a good biblical dad, you're being attacked on every front. The school doesn't want to hear from you. We hear the media talking about toxic masculinity. Can I say this? That is such an unbiblical statement. God wants men to be masculine. And he wants them to teach their boys to be masculine. We need masculinity in our country. We need femininity in our country, but we need masculinity in our society. And it is sorely missing. Even our churches are full of dads whose hearts are partially turned towards something other than their children. As I considered my topic this morning, I started to think about all the good dads in the Bible. And I began to realize that even in the Bible, a good dad was pretty rare. I started going down the list and I thought, well, David was a, was a great king. But you know, he pretty much failed as a father. Samuel, his mentor, was a wonderful prophet. A great evangelist brought great revival to the land, but... You know, it almost ended there because Samuel's kids were so rotten that they couldn't take his place. And the list really just goes on and on. But there are some good dads in the Bible. God has given us not only a lot of good examples, uh, he's given us some bad examples, but God has given us examples nonetheless. Or I'm sorry, nonetheless. Truthfully, just as it is hard to find them in, in the Bible, it's hard to find them in society today. However, as I said, the Bible is filled with examples, and I'd like to consider this morning four exemplary dads and their primary characteristic. And I think that these are characteristics, dads. And by the way, this is not just applicable to dads. This is applicable to anyone who wants to be a good Christian. Anyone who wants to live for the Lord today. So four biblical dads this morning, four dads, and we're going to point out their primary primary characteristic. Number one, number one, and I believe he's probably the first good dad recorded in the Bible, even though everyone has some faults and this man did too. But the first, I believe, good dad that we find in the Bible is found in the book of Genesis, and his name is Noah. His name is Noah. 
And I believe Noah's primary characteristic was his perspective. His perspective. Noah had a great perspective. In Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, and in verse number 5, Genesis chapter 6, and we'll go ahead and turn over there, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, because there's a couple of things that we want to look at this morning. But Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 5. Genesis chapter 6, verse number 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I'll destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God looked down at, uh, at, uh, at his creation. What a far cry from what it was. In Gen- at the very beginning of Genesis, when God had just finished it, and he looked at it, and he saw that it was very good. It was perfect. Sin had not crept into this creation yet. Therefore, there was no death. There was no corruption. He looked on his creation, and it was good. It was very good. But then, of course, man sinned, and wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And now we look down several generations, and in Genesis chapter 6, God saw that the wickedness of man was great. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And right in his own eyes meant awful in the eyes of God. The wickedness was, was terrible. Those who live for God have always been in the minority, but never has it been so evident as it was in the case of Noah. As God looked down, he could only find one man who was living for him. One man who would listen to him. One man that still honored him in all of the earth. This is an amazing thing. Noah was able to tune out the rest of the world because of his perspective. And I think that this is a good lesson for us because as you and I know, the further that this world gets from God, the more it turns its back on God, the weirder Christianity is and the more tempting it is for Christians to begin to compromise their godly walk. Well, you know, nobody does it like that anymore. No one reads this Bible anymore. No one worships that way anymore. Why, that is old-fashioned and it's outdated, and we hear this all the time. It's archaic. My goodness, no one does it that way anymore. Bit of an exaggeration. There are a lot of good churches in the United States of America, 
And if you're traveling, they may be hard to find, but they're not impossible to find. And I thank God for good churches. As a matter of fact, if you go to the men's retreat, last year I think we had about 22 churches at the men's retreat. All that believe the way that we do, that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. They worship like we do. They're old-fashioned like we are. And I don't know, I think we had close to 200 men up there. Praise the Lord that we are not alone. But Noah was. Noah could truly say, nobody does it this way anymore. And then when his kids would come home from school and his parents would, would, would reteach them, and they would say, Dad, do you realize how outdated you are? Nobody believes that anymore. And you know what? They'd be right. Nobody did. But Noah's perspective was such that he could tune out the rest of the world because his eyes were on God, his ears were on God, his heart belonged to God, and therefore in this wicked world where everyone's imagination was wicked, Noah found grace. I find this amazing because not only... Did Noah himself find grace in God? He was raising a family at the time. Let me ask you this, those who are considering moving out of Oregon because, oh, this is just not a good place to raise your children. Oh, it's so liberal. And, and oh, uh, uh, the, the schools are awful and the schools are terrible. And so we want to move to Texas or we want to move to Idaho. Let me ask you this. Where's Noah supposed to move? And incidentally... Where am I supposed to move when God's called me here? Noah was able to tune out the rest of the world because God had his heart. And this is why Noah was able to hear the word of the Lord when the rest of the world had completely tuned him out. Look at verse number, verse number 8 says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And in verse number 13, God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make. And then he begins to give Noah the pattern for the ark. Now understand, this was a world that dismissed, denied, and disdained God. Much like the world in which we live in today, only worse. Listening to God was obviously not in vogue, yet because of Noah's godly perspective, he listened to God when no one else would, and he was close enough to God that he was able to build that ark exactly to the to the measurements exactly according to the pattern that God laid out for him. Do you realize, dads, that you can still build your home according to the word of God? You just have to listen. He has to have your heart. He has to have your eyes. He has to have your ears. 
I hear parents all the time say, well, it's just, it's impossible. You can't keep that from your kids. You can't keep saying no to your kids. No, you don't have to. Not if you're living for the things of God. You can say, yes, we can go to church on Sunday. Yes, you can keep your, you can keep your body to yourself. Sure you can. Yes, you can wait until you're married. Yes, you can, do, you can live of the things of God. Yes, you can say no to that kind of music. Consider the difficulty of raising three boys in such difficult times. Dad, how do you expect us, if we're not allowed to even date girls that are not Christian, how do you ever expect us to get wives? Well, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The interesting thing is, is when we look at Noah and his sons, they've all got wives. And lo and behold, in this ungodly world, they didn't compromise. God gave each one of these boys wives that served God. This is an amazing thing when you consider the world in which he lived in. Raising three boys in such difficult times. And let me ask you this. Where's Noah going to move? Noah willingly withstood the ridicule of everyone else around him. The Bible tells us that for 120 years he built that ark. And his boys helped him. And I'm sure... Just like every single one of us, we get short on patience. I'm sure that it wasn't flawless. I'm sure there were days when one of the boys got upset and, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm just not going to talk to you anymore. Uh, I guarantee you there were days when the boys would go home to their wives and their wives would say, are you sure we're doing the right thing? And then the, the, the son of Noah might think to himself, you know, I've been wondering that myself. Because there's no indication at all that it's going to rain. I mean, it's been 20 years now we've been working on this ark and we haven't gotten very far on it. And, and yet nothing has changed Boy, when I tell people what we're doing, they just laugh me to scorn. Am I wasting my life? Let me ask you this. Has Satan ever asked you that question? Have you ever wondered? I'll be honest with you. Sometimes as a pastor, boy, been in the ministry for 10 years, been in the ministry for 20 years. You lead people to Christ, you disciple them, and then they leave the church. They break your heart. And you go home and you begin to question, man, am I, am I really doing the right thing? Are we making any progress here? Does God really want me to do this? We all have those questions. We all allow those doubts to creep in. Can you imagine working on an ark for 120 years? 
in a world where everyone's imagination is wicked. You know what happens when imaginations are wicked? Actions are wicked. Yet Noah willingly withstood the ridicule everyone else around him. You know what one of the hardest things of being a biblical dad is? Is watching your kids get ridiculed. That's the hardest thing about being a biblical dad. That's why so many biblical dads compromise. Sure, go ahead, go to the dance. I just don't want my kid to have to suffer. Sure, go ahead and, and, and go to that party. Sure, go ahead and date that girl. Sure, go ahead. I mean, it is what everyone else is doing. Pastor's just going to have to understand. Listen, it's not pastor, it's God. Does God understand? And it becomes very easy to compromise because I understand it's hard to watch your kids get ridiculed. But do you think Noah's the only one who got ridiculed? No. His kids got ridiculed. His daughter's-in-law. Now, I want to tell you something. You gain a daughter-in-law, you gain a daughter. You love her every bit as much as you love your kids. They become your kids. And to watch them get ridiculed, it's not fun. But sometimes necessary. Sometimes dads will compromise for the children. And then state it's just too hard. It's just too hard. Imagine telling your boys when they reach dating age, you can only consider girls who love the Lord and are willing to follow him. And they come back and say, there's no such thing. And then dad's saying, well, you know what? Pray. Pray about it. Oh, dad, that's not going to work. Guess what? It does work. But I know dads who compromise for the children all the time, stating it's just too hard to find good Christian young people. I guarantee you, it isn't as hard today as it was for Noah and his family. But Noah had the proper perspective. When all was said and done, Noah's entire family was on the ark. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, this is a great testimony for Noah. Book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews, chapter 11, you know this, of course, is the chapter of faith. The Bible tells us in Hebrews, chapter 11, and in verse number 7, Hebrews, chapter 11, verse number 7, by faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. In other words, everything that was going on in the world in Noah's day was totally contrary to what God had told him. There's not a cloud in the sky. There hasn't been a cloud in the sky for 120 years. And we're still working on this ark. 20 years has gone by. 30 years has gone by. 40 years has gone by. Yet the Bible says, by faith Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. He had to tune out the rest of the world if his house was going to be saved. And he did, because of his perspective, a biblical perspective. 
The Bible goes on, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness, which is by faith. Uh, An impressive thing when you consider Noah went onto the ark. His wife followed him onto that ark. His His three boys followed him onto that ark. His three daughters-in-law followed him onto that ark. That tells us a lot about Noah. Because imagine, if you will, dad calls a family meeting. Dad, he calls his his boys and and says, we're going to have a family meeting. I need everyone there. You want our wives to be there? Your wives have to be there too. This is important. Everyone needs to hear this. And now everyone is together. Noah, Mrs. Noah, the three boys, and their Mrs. Noah's. And Noah says, this is going to be pretty hard to tell you. But God's word today told me this. We got to start building an ark because in 120 years, God's going to flood the entire planet And we've got to be ready. I think the most impressive thing about Noah is they all bought it. They all bought into it. Remember when Lot went to his daughters and his sons-in-law? And he said, we got to get out of this town because God's going to rain down fire and brimstone and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says his children laughed at him as they thought they were, that he was mocking them. Do you want to know why that was? Lot, Lot had spent so much time compromising that when he tried to get spiritual with them, they thought it was funny. Noah obviously had such a relationship with God and it was evident in his life. That when he told this to his kids, they took it seriously and they said, Dad, whatever you need us to do, we're there for you. Imagine having to build that ark by himself. No, instead he had, he had, well, at least three helpers. And quite possibly he had, he had their, their wives also. This is an impressive thing. And the fact that when all was said and done... They all walked onto the ark, and God shut the door, and they were all saved. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, to the saving of his house. Why? Because Noah had a, pers- had a, the, had a biblical perspective. He was able to tune out the rest of the world, tune out the fads of the world, the fashions of the world, the desires of the world and say to his kids, it doesn't matter what the rest of the world is doing, we're following God. And the rest of the world was not building an ark at that time. But Noah and his boys did. Living in a wicked society does not mean one has to compromise. A lack of compromise on the part of the fathers will definitely pay dividends in the children. Fathers need to have their hearts turned to their children by living for God, having a biblical perspective, and if need be, ignoring the world so that we can follow God's will, God's mandates, and God's laws. The perspective 
of Noah. Well, we're kind of running out of time. We're just going to look at one other and then we'll save the other two for the afternoon service. How about that? The next father, I believe, and some would argue who came first between these two two dads uh, chronologically, but we're just going to look at this one and his name is Job. His name is Job. Noah had a good perspective, but I believe Job's main characteristic, primary characteristic, was his practice. His practice. Job practiced what he preached. Let's turn to the book of Job. Job chapter 1. The book of Job in chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Job is just before Psalms, one of the poetical books. Job chapter 1. And uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. Job chapter 1, verse number 1. I find it interesting that though Job was extremely wealthy, and if the world was to describe Job, the world would say this. One of the richest men you'll ever meet. That would be the world's description of him. And they'd say, man, he lives in a mansion. He has more than anyone else could ask for. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that he was the, he was the wealthiest man uh, in the eastern parts where he lived. So here in our, in our area, we would say, well, who's, who's the richest guy? We'd probably all point to Phil Knight because in the Portland area, he's the one who's known. He's, uh, he's one of the top billionaires in the world. And so in this area, boy, it's, it's Phil Knight. If we were to take the entire Pacific Northwest, we'd say, well, Phil Knight, Bill Gates, used to be Paula Helen, uh, now his sister. Uh, but but, but, but uh, what are the things you know about these guys? Well, they're wealthy. They're extremely rich. But in Job chapter 1, when God's word describes Job, the first thing that it says about him, Job 1.1, 1, 1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was a perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. You know, here we see that God's, uh, what, what God considers important, completely different than what God, man considers important. When you'd ask God, God, what is it that makes Job so great? God says, He's spiritually mature. That's what perfect means. He's upright. That means he's, he's a moral man. He's one that eschews evil. That means you're not going to see him at the, at the parties. You're not going to see him at the gatherings. He eschews evil. He stays away from it. He's a moral man. And he's one that fears God. It's not until we come to verse number three that we find out, oh, and he was also wealthy. Now you change that around and you ask a man, hey, describe Job for me. Oh, he's wealthy. He's rich. He's good with money. That's what the world would consider to be very important. That's what makes a great man. He's successful. No, God says he's successful because he fears God. 
He's successful because he eschews evil. He's successful because he's spiritually mature. But the world would say, nah, he's successful because he's got a thousand sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses. Very great household. He lives in a mansion up there on the hill. Boy, and at night, when they light the lights, that entire hill lights up. That's Job's house. He's a great man. But not in God's eyes. God kind of throws that in afterwards. He was an upright man, a moral man. We would, we would do the opposite. He's a great, great man. Uh, and he, he goes to church a lot. Job practiced what he preached, and I think that this is his primary characteristic. Our first glimpse into this family shows a father who knew it was only by the grace of God that his kids would be what they ought to be. And I think that that is a great uh, attitude for a dad. Not, I got this, but I am far from having this. I need God in my life. And in Job chapter 1, verse number 5, I find this very interesting. The Bible says, And it was so when the days of their fasting were gone about... Well, let's back up verse number four, because I think this says a lot about his kids. His sons went and fasted in their houses every one his day. I'm sorry, feasted, not fasted, the opposite. So his son said, hey, we are going to, and maybe it was their Thanksgiving, I don't know, their Christmas. It was obviously, it was uh, an occasion And the sons, they all got together. And then they said, well, let's not forget our sisters. We got to have them over too. They all got together. I think this says a lot about Job, that his kids wanted to be together. And that they got along. And that they feasted together. They got along together. They loved each other. And I think it says a lot about dad. And they sent and they called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Verse number five says, And it was so that when the days of their feasting were gone about, so Job knew, hey, my my sons and my daughters, they're all together. Job sent and sanctified them. He rose up early in the morning. He offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. In other words, this wasn't something that Job did once in a while. This was something his kids saw him do all the time. Offering these burnt offerings, these sacrifices to God, begging God, Lord God, please... Watch my kids, lead my kids, guide my kids. Kids need to see their dads practicing the things of God. Not being lectured about how they ought to do it. Things are better caught than taught. Dads ought to be doing it. Dads ought to be practicing 
Knowing that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, Job prayed and sacrificed for them. Not just once, not just a couple times a year. The Bible says continually he did this. He knew that the best thing for his family was for him to be committed and active in serving God. If I'm committed and I'm active in serving God, that's the best thing for my kids. Well, that means they're going to have to miss some sporting events. Well, sporting events are not the best thing for my kids. They're good for my kids, but they're not the best thing for my kids. Well, that means they're going to have to miss out on some uh, some events. You know, events are not the best thing for my kids. They're good things for my kids, but not the best thing. The best thing is if they see dad serving God, active in the things of God, and this is something that they see constantly and continually. Job didn't merely state his love for God. Job lived his love for God. And you can believe his family observed it. Even when the chips were down, and we know for Job, to say the chips were down is an understatement. I mean, we're looking at the good part, but we know that all this vanishes in one day. All his wealth, his beautiful kids, they all vanish in one day. Mike, can you imagine? And yet... Job, because he always practiced what he preached, says the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. It's a solid bet that Job displayed the same love for God in front of his children. No wonder they all got along so well. No wonder they were all where they were supposed to be because Job, the Bible says, did this continually, even to the point that God bragged on Job. Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in all the land? Not because he's rich, not because he's wealthy, but because he is a perfect, upright man, one that eschews evil, one that fears God. This solidified the fact that Job did not get wealthy by compromising his walk with God. He kept God first, and then all these things were added unto him. Just like Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Job obviously did it. And all these things shall be added unto you. It doesn't mean you're going to get rich. It doesn't mean you're going to be rich. Unless you define rich as someone who has the blessings of God in his life, then you will be rich. However, it doesn't mean that you're going to have all the possessions that Job had. But we do know this about Job's possessions. He didn't get them by compromising. He didn't get them by working on Sunday. He didn't get them by neglecting his family. He practiced what he preached And then God blessed him accordingly. My, the perspective of Noah, the practice of Job. We need fathers like that. Fathers that'll keep God first. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. By the way, we don't just need fathers like that. We need moms like that. We need Christians like that. 
that can have a biblical perspective in this noisy world in which we live in, that can tune out the things of this world so that we can live of the things of God. And the practice of Job, who the Bible says did this continually, sanctifying his kids, praying for his kids,